<laughs> Praise God, right? Hi, I'm Brian. I'm one of the elders here at North Shore. Um, I get to read the scripture for today and then pray for us. Uh, the scripture is out of Matthew 18, uh, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one, of his, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went out to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We are thankful, Father, that we are able to talk to you and that you listen. You care about us. You love us more than we can comprehend. And you have given us mercy that wasn't earned and grace that is often not taken. Your patience with us is amazing. And we are, we are never as patient with others as, as you are patient with us. What is even more impressive is that this is just who you are. You don't, you don't even have to try at all. Therefore, help us to respond to your infinite worth and your infinite patience with an attitude of thankfulness and awe. And may we never become too familiar with how awesome you are. May we never take you for granted. May we always fear you with a righteous fear. And glory be to you always, Father. And Father, North Shore Church needs you. We, we always do. We, just like any other group of people, have needs. And we also experience suffering. Those that are suffering, we bring before you and ask for your mercy. We pray, we pray for uh, Sue Mortensen's mother-in-law. She experienced a heart attack and is now recovering. We ask that she heal fully and quickly, and that her husband would experience peace that only you can provide through this type of experience. And for VBS, as we just saw this past week, thank you, Father, for all those kids and that energy. You brought them here. If any of those kids have families that don't know you, I pray that, that you may be seen through them 
And if the time comes that you begin to do a work in their life, help us as a church body to be prepared to receive those that may come here and want to know more about you because of what you did to those kids in VBS. We also pray for Mel and Brenda's grandson, Rory. May you break through whatever hold is on this kid and help him see your grace and mercy. Help those that are closest to him, that are working with him, to lean on you and your strength. And thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. It's so infinite. May all that we say and do be pleasing to you and bring glory and honor to you. Help us to surrender all. And may everything that is said this morning bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word that was just read. We thank you, God, that it is not the words of a human being. It is the words of God. That Jesus prayed, your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. This is a sanctifying word, a word that can make us like Jesus. And God, we pray that by your spirit that would happen today. For Jesus' sake, amen. We're continuing in our series on building a biblical community of peacemakers here at North Shore as we study the scriptures to see what is involved in all of that. Up to this point, we've been looking mostly at this topic by asking the question, how do peacemakers respond to a brother or sister in sin. Lord willing, we'll finish that part of the series next week when we conclude this series. This week we want to look at this topic by asking a different, though no less important question, and that is not how do you make biblical peace by confronting a brother or sister in the sin, but instead how do peacemakers, children of God, respond when a believer has sinned against them? deeply wounding them or angering them. And that, of course, as you just heard, speaks to the issue of forgiveness. If forgiveness is not a challenge for you at this moment, probably only a matter of time until a brother or sister in Christ says or does something hurtful to you or someone you love. It's a very real part, unfortunately, of living and existing in community with other people who are sinners. Whether these sins are real or perceived against us, some of the deepest hurts that we may experience may come at the hands of someone who is a brother or sister in Christ. And part of being a peacemaker, part of living in a biblical community, is knowing how to respond when that occurs. We all know people who would claim to be Christians and whose testimony sounds something like, I went to that church for X number of years, and then when this happened, that's it, I was done. That's just a real part of every church. So today we want to look at what the Scripture says to believers as it relates to forgiving anyone who has hurt, offended, disappointed us, 
but especially those in the church, because that's where the text is. But it's really, it applies to anybody who hurts us, but especially to believers, because that's the focus Jesus puts on it. The response that God calls us to give in Scripture, as it relates to forgiveness, is impossible for us to live out apart from the grace of God. And that obviously shouldn't be surprising to us because Jesus says we can do nothing apart from him. It's all impossible if we're seeking to do it in such a way to honor him. We're called to deny ourselves and be willing to surrender all of our worldly possessions. In the face of potential hatred and ostracism, we're called to not be ashamed of the gospel, even with our family. He calls us to love our enemies and to serve those who hate us. All of those things are impossible, but of all the impossible things that Jesus calls us to do, there is perhaps one that makes the most powerful impression on the watching world because it is so counter to our fallen natures, and that is to genuinely forgive someone who has deeply wounded us. A rather obscure part of the American church made a profound cultural impact in just this way back in 2007. You may remember when the truck driver killed those five Amish girls in a one-room schoolhouse in rural Pennsylvania, just gunned them down. Shortly after the tragedy, you probably also remember that the Amish publicly declared their forgiveness of the gunman and took up a collection for the killer's widow and her three young children. The scene of several members of the Amish community who had just buried their own children hugging the killer's widow and other members of the killer's family at his burial service left a very deep impression on our nation. Anyone who has been deeply hurt by someone else's sin can appreciate just how impossible that is apart from the grace of God. Forgiveness of those who've hurt us is a virtue that many people admire. But Christianity, unlike every other religion, without exception, commands believers to forgive those who hurt them. No other religion does that. If you've never been deeply hurt by someone else's sin, you don't realize why this is so out of reach for us apart from the grace of God. One reason that forgiving someone who's deeply hurt us is so intensely difficult is because it can feel so unfair to you when you've been hurt by somebody. I mean, when you think about the dynamics here, there you are, let's assume you've been hurt by someone, there you are, you're the victim, you're already deeply wounded, someone else's sin has in some way stolen something from you, or maybe someone from you, perhaps it's damaged a precious relationship to you in some way, but in that wounded condition, you're sitting there wounded, and as a Christian, you find yourself in the position of what feels like indebtedness to the person who hurt you. Because God has called believers to forgive the offender, that can feel like you owe the offender something. And it feels wrong to us, doesn't it, that one who has been hurt should in any way be under any obligation, especially if you haven't done anything wrong. When you're hurt, it feels like it should surely be someone else's obligation to do something for you. But for believers, Christ calls 
the victims, the ones that have been injured, to fulfill their obligation to forgive those who hurt us. That's why you hear so many times the story, that's it, when that happened, I was out of there. Because it's hard. I personally knew a family whose daughter, adult daughter, was brutally raped and killed while serving in the military in Texas. And her family later felt called of God to write a letter to this inmate who'd killed their daughter and raped her, expressing their forgiveness of him and sharing the gospel with him. Only people who have been deeply wounded realize the grace of God required to do something like that. And yet, the plain and consistent truth of Scripture that we must never soften is that forgiving those who've hurt us, irrespective of the depth of our hurt, is Jesus' consistent 100% expectation of his people. That we forgive all of those who hurt us, just as he hung up on the cross and forgave those who tortured and killed him. Perhaps the best place in the Bible... To see both the power and the motivation of this kind of forgiveness is what Brian read in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel. Jesus' teaching, as you just heard, is in the form of a parable. And he gives this parable on forgiveness in response to a question that Peter asks in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So Peter is clearly talking uh, about a situation where a fellow Jew offends him. And though the Old Testament does not anywhere cite a specific number of times you must forgive the offender, the Jewish rabbis, who are kind of the guardians of the Old Testament traditions anyway, their, their teaching at the time of Jesus was that if someone offended you three times in the same way you needed to forgive them three times. That was the common understanding among the rabbinic school. So whether Peter was trying to impress Jesus with a number that higher than the rabbis taught, or whether he just assumed that Jesus, being who Jesus was, would have a higher standard than the rabbis, we don't know what his motivation is. What we do know is that Jesus' response to Peter's questions was far more demanding than he or any of the disciples could have possibly anticipated. As it relates to Jesus' response, translations differ, but the ESV that Brian read out of has the support of most of the scholars where it says 77. Some of the translations say 70 times 7, that would work out to 490. But whatever the specific number might be, it's ultimately not all that important for two reasons. First, it's important for us to know that Peter, who expected an answer much closer to seven, when he hears an answer 11 times that number, both his jaw and the jaws of every other disciple hearing this would have been on the ground. In light of the common rabbinic understanding of what was appropriate in those days, Jesus' teaching on forgiveness would have sounded nothing less than outlandish. There is nothing, absolutely nothing intuitive about forgiving someone for the same offense this many times, whether it's 77 or 490. Jesus' point is clearly, you forgive the person as many times as they sin against you. 
There's no single point in this repetitive cycle of sin where we're released from our obligation. Jesus would never expect us in the first place of keeping score of the offenses. Love keeps no record of wrongs. But he would never expect us to keep score in such a way so that we could say, okay, that was the 77th time. One more. I don't have to forgive you. That's ridiculous. Jesus then tells the parable, and the point of the parable is to teach us how. How we forgive someone as many times as they sin against us. And we know that's what Jesus is doing in this parable, because after he makes this outlandish claim about forgiving someone 77 times, he begins the parable in verse 23 saying, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and then he tells the story of the king and the servant. The word therefore tells us that Jesus is telling this parable for the purpose of explaining how it is that we're indebted to forgive those who sin against us as many times as is necessary. For many of us, the details of this parable are pretty familiar. The king in this parable very clearly represents God, and he seeks to settle accounts with his servants in the story. One servant, Jesus says, owes him 10,000 talents. Well, a talent, if you've ever read the note in your Bible at the bottom of the page, was, was worth the weight of about 75 pounds of gold. That's what a talent was, 75 pounds of gold. So this person owed the king the value of 750,000 pounds, if it's 10,000 talents, 750,000 pounds of gold. And I did the calculations today based on the price of an ounce times 16. Anyway, give you the figure just to suggest the enormity of the debt, and it comes in slightly under $23 billion. And again, remember, like the number 77, the point is not that this man owed exactly or thereabouts $22 billion or $23 billion. The reason is because I dare say in the history of humanity, no other person has ever had a personal, I'm not talking corporate debt or business debt, a personal indebtedness to another person of the equivalent of $23 billion. You just don't rack up that kind of debt. Nobody's going to loan that to you as a person. It just doesn't happen. The point of it is to say, this is beyond. This is transcendent. This is astronomical. This is not a personal debt that anybody could even loan to another human being, much less pay back if someone was foolish enough to loan it to you. The point is that this kind of debt that a person could rack up only could occur in the spiritual realm with God. Now, this kind of astronomical debt could easily be racked up with God in terms of our spiritual indebtedness. This astronomical debt toward God is not only possible, frankly, it's a certainty for any sinner. This is because God is, as Brian said two or three times in his prayer, infinitely holy, infinitely glorious, which means, as Augustine taught us, even one sin, because it is an assault against God's infinite holiness and infinite glory, racks up with God an infinite spiritual debt. The debt that we owe God for even one sin is a debt of infinite magnitude, because any offense against an infinite being is an infinite offense. That means that we would be getting off cheaply if our debt to God was only a finite 
23 billion units of punishment. The reason that hell must be an eternal hell is because the only way a finite sinner could pay an infinite debt is to spend an eternity paying it to God. It's obvious that Jesus is not intending us to take this figure literally because the debt we owe to God by virtue of our sins makes 23 billion look like chump change. That's not the point. In the parable, the debtor stands before the king with a debt he knows he can never repay, but in his sheer desperation, he makes this incredibly disingenuous offer in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Okay, that's pathetic, because both he and the king knows that's an empty wish, that's never going to happen, but in his anguish, it's all he could say in light of the fact that his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. That's verse 25. Because he could never pay his debt, the king's decision here is a death sentence. Not only for him, it's a death sentence for his wife and for his children. His debt had placed him in the worst position imaginable, and he knew it. And so his irrational pleading here comes out of his sense of sheer terror at the idea of himself, his wife, and his kids facing a death sentence in prison. And prisons were not nice places. In verse 27, Jesus reveals the great miracle in the story, and it says, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant, this is the king, released him and forgave him the debt. Now think about this. The king, knowing that the servant could never repay him, decides not only to forego prison for this man and his family, he completely forgives the debt. So this is a man that a moment earlier could have at best hoped that in an act of great mercy, that rather than imprison him, the king would instead make him spend the rest of his life working off the debt, having his salary garnished for the rest of his life, and then he would die a debtor. That was the best he could possibly imagine, because no one ever could forgive a $23 billion debt. Can't even rack it up, much less forgive it. But of course, this king is a very different kind of king, isn't he? This king removes the entire massive, soul-crushing burden from this man. And in a moment, the servant goes from facing the fate that he and his family will all die horrible deaths in prison to being a completely free man with absolutely no consequences of any sort to pay for racking, this, racking up this utterly unpayable debt. He went from the worst of all possible fates to an absolutely unbelievable positive outcome. No one forgives a $23 billion debt. Yet, in an absolutely stunning development, this newly forgiven servant responds in a way that makes it clear that this profound act of mercy made zero impression on him. He doesn't in any way appreciate what the king had done for him because as the story continues in verse 28, Jesus says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He doesn't say everything. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. This newly forgiven man found someone who owed him a hundred denarii. That's the equivalent of a day laborer's wages for about three months. Now, if you used as a guide the current Michigan minimum wage, which would be a lot higher than a day laborer's wage, the debt owed him would be very manageable. It would be about like a modest used car payment. So this debtor in verse 29 says, have patience with me and I will pay you. And unlike the recently forgiven servants earlier offered to the king, which was a fanciful wish, a joke, this offer of payback is legitimate. This was very doable. However, in spite of the fact that this debt clearly could have been negotiated and repaid, this recently forgiven servant instead places this other servant in prison until he should pay the debt. And of course, it's impossible to work when you're in prison and earn money, so you're not going to pay the debt. So he places him in a hopeless situation, and this at the hand of a man who's just been the recipient of such profound mercy, the king. The gross injustice in the two situations Jesus presents is glaring, and it's intended, like all of Jesus' parables, to provoke an emotional response from us. The same kind of response that this man's fellow servants in the story, who had witnessed all of this, they saw, and they were greatly distressed by this. And so they take the man's hypocrisy, and they report it all to the king. The conclusion of the parable begins in verse 32. Matthew records, Then his master, the king, summoned him, this merciless hypocrite, and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you... And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Well, at this point, again, it's worth reminding ourselves, the king here represents God, and the wicked servant represents anyone who has been forgiven by the king, but who refuses those who have to forgive those who've sinned against him. That's the scenario that Jesus is really talking about here. The response of the king is, as you would expect, harsh. He calls him wicked in verse 32. He reminds him of his earlier off-the-charts display of grace, and it's in anger, it says, that he delivers this man over to jailers. And literally that word is not jailers. Literally that word means torturers. So these men would torture this man until he could repay his debt, which was, of course, never. So the king sentences this man to unending torture for his sin of unforgiveness in the context of his earlier forgiveness of him. And as Jesus closes the parable in verse 35, he draws an unbreakable connection between this wicked servant and all believers. He says to his disciples, people like us, who had been listening to the parable, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We mustn't miss the fact that Jesus spells the particular kind of forgiveness he expects in light of the Father's forgiveness of us. This is forgiveness that is from your heart. 
Okay, that's an important and clarifying distinction because we can all deceive ourselves into thinking we've forgiven someone who's hurt us when really we haven't. Someone wrongs or disappoints or wounds us in some way and rather than choose to genuinely in gentleness confront and work through the problem and then generally come to a place of forgiveness, you instead choose to just drop it and avoid any unnecessary contact with them mirroring the culture that we live in up here. That's not forgiving someone from the heart. That does not qualify under Jesus' definition of forgiveness. Now, there's some diagnostic tests that we could posit that would indicate whether we've forgiven someone from the heart. For instance, if you overhear people saying great things about the person who hurt you, and your response is to grumble because you know the truth, and how could they be so mistaken about You haven't forgiven him from the heart. If you refuse to work with or closely associate the offending person, you haven't forgiven from the heart. If you continue over a period of months to become enraged at the thoughts of this person and you're making no effort to fight those thoughts as sinful, you haven't forgiven from the heart. If your goal is to indefinitely keep that person at arm's length, being cordial and nothing more, you haven't forgiven from the heart. If the notion of doing something nice for that person is thoroughly unappealing to you, you haven't forgiven from the heart. Forgiven someone from the heart means as much as it depends upon you, your relationship with that person is restored to something close to what it was before the offense, and perhaps by the grace of God, it's even closer, or at least it's on that trajectory. This main point of application from the parable is pretty clear, and that is our capacity to forgive others is determined by our own sense of being forgiven by God. That's what the parable teaches. And this is really important for us to get this. Because the root problem with the wicked servant was not fundamentally that he refused to forgive his debtor. That's not what the parable teaches. The root problem with the wicked servant was his refusal to re forgive the debtor in light of the fact that he'd been forgiven this incalculable debt. That's the message of Jesus in the parable. And that means that when you and I feel like we just could never forgive someone for what they did to us, or we've spent a very long time unsuccessfully struggling to forgive someone who hurt us, the reason for the struggle is not fundamentally because of what that person did to you. In light of the parable, our root problem is our failure to live in the light of being forgiven of our own enormous debt. This parable completely destroys any possible justification a believer might be tempted to give for failing to forgive someone because of the devastation another person's sin has brought upon their lives. There's nothing that anyone will ever do to us that will justify us not forgiving them. The Pennsylvania Amish are a contemporary illustration of what Jesus is teaching here. And this parable teaches us that the reason we are never justified in holding a grudge of unforgiveness is because the reason we refuse to forgive someone is because there's something wrong in our hearts toward God as it relates to our grasp of the gospel and what that means to us. That's what Jesus is teaching here. The ground of our forgiveness of others can never be related to the person or what the person did or did not do to us. The ground of our forgiveness of anybody who's hurt us is the ground of what God has done for us in the gospel. 
When we're struggling to forgive someone, the way to end that struggle, struggle is not to try to think differently about that person or to work hard to forget it or to go to your happy place. For the Christian, our failure to forgive some, someone comes from one ultimate cause, and that is we've lost sight of what it is to be forgiven, the incalculable debt of our sin before a holy, sin-hating God. Jesus teaches that's our problem when we struggle with unforgiveness. If by God's grace we get a more appropriate appreciation for the incalculable debt that God has forgiven us, then forgiving others who have hurt us will be much more accessible. This is because you'll see that no matter how badly you've been grieved by your debtor, you've grieved God infinitely more, and he forgave you. And this is the consistently at the heart of New Testament teaching on this issue of forgiveness. Paul cites the exact same ground for forgiving others in Colossians 3.13. He says, the believers must be bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. See, same ground. The ground of our forgiveness of others is the Lord's forgiveness of us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There it is again. Consistent bedrock motivation for forgiving those who sin against us is that we've been forgiven. This is why when people say, that's it, I left at that point, I was done. Okay, they haven't got a clue what they've been forgiven. That's the problem. It's not what the person in the church did, not the problem. They think that, problem is, they don't get forgiveness. They don't get the cross. Another point of the parable, as it relates to this unending punishment the king gives to the unforgiven servant, is, as John Piper says, is divinely offered forgiveness that does not transform our lives into forgiving people will not save us. I'm going to say that again. Divinely offered forgiveness that does not transform our lives into forgiving people, that kind of forgiveness won't save anybody. That means that when a person supernaturally experiences forgiveness by God of their incalculable guilt, that does a transforming work in his heart towards those who sin against him or her. That doesn't mean forgiveness is a snap or easy. That's not the point at all. When by God's grace we internalize, internalize in here, not up here, in here, what it means to be forgiven of the tremendous debt we owed God, that transforms us into forgiving people. And one reason is because when we live with an ongoing sense of the incalculable debt that we owed God, failing to forgive others just seems like the apex of hypocrisy. Being forgiven of our sins by God creates within a believer a humbled heart that awakens mercy for others including mercy toward those who've sinned against us. Show me a person who has internalized their own forgiveness by God. I'll show you a person whose grudge-keeping pride has been broken. I'll show you a contrite, tender-hearted person who's far more impressed by the infinite mercy that they've received from God than any amount of mercy that they might need to dispense to others who've sinned against them far less severely. This parable does not teach that the unforgiven servant was saved but then lost his salvation when he failed to forgive the servant. No, the point is, as it relates to the, the issue of salvation, is that if you've not been transformed by the forgiving grace of God, you're not a Christian. Again, 
This doesn't mean that Christians who've been deeply wounded will not have to, at some point, have to struggle a bit as the Lord heals them and reminds them of their own grace that he's given to them. But in this parable, Jesus gives us permission to make the judgment that someone who knows these truths and feels justified in not forgiving someone who hurt them is no Christian. That's an implication of this text. Another point of application involves the character of God, and I get this from Don Carson's commentary in Matthew, and that is, there is no inconsistency in a God who can both forgive bountifully and punish ruthlessly. And those are his words. Some might see the picture of God that Jesus paints here so vividly in this parable and wonder, how can that be? How can, how can the kind of God who forgives infinite offenses as any sin against his infinite person is, at the same time, turn wicked people to infinite torture. For a lot of people in the world, that is a disconnect. They just don't get that. And Carson's right when he says that a God of such compassion could never accept as his child someone who will not at least show the comparably small amount of compassion required to forgive a much smaller debt. When God saves a sinner, we have to understand this. When God saves a sinner, he is in the business of transforming that person for his glory into someone who increasingly, over time, more and more lives and thinks and acts like God. That's the ultimate point of salvation, of sending Jesus to the cross. Someone who is not like him but who is instead unmerciful toward comparatively tiny offenses is due his wrath. As we close, if you're here today and you're intentionally keeping a grudge of unforgiveness against someone, and for some of you that's just inactivity maybe, you just haven't dealt with it, or if you've chosen to play the role of a peace faker, with a person who's hurt you and pretend that everything's fine when everything's not fine, you really still are hurt. Jesus is calling you to feel the weight of what he's saying here. Think about the incalculable debt that you've been forgiven. And in the light of that heart-humbling, mercy-awakening grace of God, forgive those who've hurt you. Forgive them from the heart and begin to relate to them in a manner that honors God and shows the transforming work of grace in your own heart. If you're here today and you've just hardened your heart and you refuse to forgive to somebody, then my invitation to you is come to Christ today and receive a newly humbled, transformed heart. Receive the infinite forgiveness God can offer anyone in their sin. As a person with an infinite debt before a holy God, you can escape judgment. That's the good news of the gospel. Receive his mercy. By looking to Christ as the one who, on the cross, paid the debt that sinners like us owe God. Receive his death as the substitute payment for our death. Receive forgiveness for your sins. May God grant us the grace to forgive others as we've been forgiven for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, this is very practical stuff because my guess is Most of us know people who claim to be Christians, who have felt justified in just blowing people off because they hurt them. And it wasn't 77 times or 490 times. 
And it certainly wasn't 23 billion units of offense. God, we need your grace. Father, if there's someone here today that is struggling to forgive someone, God, I pray that you would just enable them to know your compassion and mercy. And I pray, Father, that you would enable them to think deeply about the cross. And as the truth of the gospel more deeply penetrates their heart, God, I thank you for the transforming grace that makes that bitterness flow away. Thank you for the miraculous nature of what it is to be a Christian. And Father, help us at North Shore to keep our accounts short and help us to be in the business of showing the transforming grace of God as we forgive one another for his glory. Amen.